now we find ourselves jumping forward somewhat, uh, making a, a great leap in the story of the Old Testament to God's covenant with David. So if you haven't been following along, I would really encourage you to go back to lesson one and start from there to, to gain the understanding, gain the context of this series that we've been doing because even though these are lessons that are you know separated out, lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, we're, we're really trying to paint the big picture of, of the Old Testament, of God's work through God's people um, in a period of history, um, back in time. So go back to lesson one and start there and, and make your way through. As a reminder also, you know, it's, it's on the covenants, and maybe some of you are familiar with covenant theology. So this is not a, a proper study of covenant theology, that we have mentioned themes and we have mentioned key points along the way that would relate to a study like that. But this really is a study, a, a journey, if you will, walking through the major covenants in the scriptures. This is the final one that we'll see um, in the Old Testament. And it's, it's with the idea to help us all, myself included, to become better readers of the scriptures. So knowing more of, of God's overarching plan, looking at that sort of 30,000 foot view of the scriptures, we can narrow down and we can read each chapter of the Old Testament and really gain and benefit from the knowledge that we have. So as a reminder from where we've been, we started way back several lessons ago and we saw Adam's failure that God told him, do this certain thing and you will have life with me in the garden that I've given to you, and he failed. We saw with Noah that God preserved the, the human race. He preserved the line to bring that seed that was promised to Adam. We saw with Abraham that God drew him out of his father's land and made many great promises to him, that that was really the start of the nation of Israel, of God saying to Abraham, I will give you these descendants. I will make your your descendants numerous. I'll give you a land. And Abraham didn't realize that promise fully. He had his son Isaac who was born, but he was looking forward to that day when God would fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham. We saw in the last lesson the life of Moses very briefly. We sort of had to rush through that one because there was just so much in the book of Exodus, of Leviticus, of Numbers, of Deuteronomy. We saw the nation of Israel as God had foretold to Abraham that they were brought out from the land of Egypt. God dealt with their oppressors. They were brought into the wilderness. They were brought to Mount Sinai where the covenant was ratified. There were all sorts of laws and commands that they were given for God preparing this new nation of Abraham's descendants to live life in the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. So that brings us then to the end of the Pentateuch, or the end of the first five books of the Bible. And now we find ourselves in just a few moments in the book of 1 Samuel. So to consider what's happened between there, we could have a whole series on, on every book chronologically that's that's taken place between Joshua and his life all the way until Samuel. But briefly, we have the, the history, Abraham and Moses. We have um, a covenant summary that I would like to read in Joshua chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Joshua chapter 24. So if you'll remember, uh, Moses, sort of his successor in some ways was, was Joshua. And sort of in the way, in, in a certain way that Moses had in Deuteronomy his farewell addresses where he reminded Israel of their obligations. He warned them what would happen if they broke the covenant with God. 
He warned them about what happened if they went after other gods. Joshua does a similar thing. So he goes through and he recounts sort of, this is what God has done for you. This is what God has done for us as his chosen people. So in Joshua chapter 24, he, he gives a, a covenant summary, if you will. So I'll just read a couple of verses. Verse 14, Joshua speaking, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land that you are living in. But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. So maybe you've heard that last part of that last verse of, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But I hope you can see more of the significance of it in the context of God's covenant with Israel, of Joshua taking his stand and saying, even if every person in this nation that God has, has grown, has prospered, goes astray, I will serve the Lord. So that brings us then to the period of, of the Judges. So there's a book in the Bible called The Judges, and it's a series of, of leaders that God raises up. So it's a cyclical book. There's, there's cycles. It's the same thing that happens over and over to make a point to God's people and also for us. It's this cycle of rebellion of the people who they don't keep the covenant. They're not faithful to God and what he has laid out in his commands. They go after other gods. They, they don't serve their one true and living God. There's oppression on the people. They cry out in distress saying, Lord, please help us. Please rescue us. And then God in his kindness and his grace, he raises up a deliverer or a judge over them. So this goes on for several hundred years. So like I've said before, it's easy for us to read you know, these chapters, to work our way through the Old Testament and forget the sense of, of centuries that can go by. But these judges, these judgment periods happen in cycles. And that brings us, if you will, all the way until the book of 1 Samuel. So you can be turning there with me. Um, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are really the life of, we're introduced to David and then to King David. And 2 Samuel lays out the covenant that we'll, we'll arrive at in a moment. Um, typically in these lessons, we've looked at the context as the, the expectation of what do we think is going to happen based on previous chapters and then the immediate context. But what I want to do in this lesson is split it up a little bit differently. So to build the context, we'll have 1 Samuel and the life of King Saul, and then to go on to the next sort of more immediate, we have the life of King David. So if you have your Bible, let's read a, a very short portion of 1 Samuel. Turn to chapter 8 with me. First Samuel chapter 8, I'll read verses 4 through 9. This explains the context of, of how Israel went from having those judges that we had just mentioned to having a, a king, sort of a, a monarchy established, if you will. So First Samuel 8, 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you, Samuel, have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. 
the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. In verse 9, Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will rule over them. So in the second half of chapter 8, Samuel will go on and say, This king will oppress you. This king will be bad for you. He'll take a tenth of what you have. In Israel, in their foolishness and chasing after what other nations have, they say, No, give us this king. So God makes it clear that to Samuel, he says, They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. In their choosing of this this earthly king that's physically in front of them, they have rejected their heavenly king, if you will. They rejected me as their God. Um, Samuel warns that they will cry out, that they will say, oh, we made a mistake, please help us. But Israel doesn't heed the warning. Chapter 12, verse 14, if you'll turn there, this is a very good summary of, of a way for us to think about the whole period of kings over Israel. So chapter 12, verse 14, it says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. So that verse with the chapter around it really lays out this idea of kingship over Israel. So if the people will listen to their king and the king will listen to their God, and then all the way down, if if the king will take God's instruction, if the people will take the king's instruction as coming from God, it'll go well with them. So we can say in a simpler way, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And so we see the people in 1 Samuel, they choose King Saul for themselves. They look at outward appearances and say, this man will be great. You know, he's handsome in appearance. He has these outward qualities. He's desirable. It seems good in our sight, so let's have them. And God uses King Saul in ways. He, he gives him his thousands, as God will say later. He uh, blesses the king in certain ways. He gives him his spirit that turns him into another man to help him to rule as king. But King Saul doesn't stay loyal to God uh, during his rule. That at a certain point, the, the pride of life, the thinking that Saul knows better than God does, he turns away from King Saul. He removes, God removes his spirit from King Saul, and he says, I'll have to raise up one for myself. So God's not opposed to Israel having a king. If you remember back with, with Abraham, God told Abraham and he told Sarah, he said, you will have kings come from your line. So God's plan at some point was to raise up a formal king, to have a monarchy. But the contrast is in God's plan for a king and Israel's plan for a king for themselves. Israel said that they didn't want oppression to come. They wanted a king to go out and fight for them. God wanted to be that for them, and Israel rejected God. God's reason for a king, though, was to help Israel to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord that he would raise up that king, King David, and establish his line forever, as we'll see in the covenant that God made with him, that that would be their king, leading to the king of kings that would come and rule over all. So that's the end of the life of Saul, that the people chose him in spite of God's warnings, that he strayed away from God, he did not uh, follow God's commands, he was not a righteous ruler, and so God removes his favor from him, he, it leads to his downfall, and God raises up King David. 
the contrast that we have between King David and King Saul is that God chose King David, and he didn't choose him based on outward appearances. He didn't choose him because he was mighty and tall and strong and looked like he would do a good job. He was a little shepherd boy who was the youngest of all of his sons that was the least likely of candidates. But God chose him. The prophet Samuel anointed him and set him apart for service to God. So let's go on then to to 2 Samuel, if you'll keep turning in in the scriptures. Early on in 2 Samuel, we see that that David was anointed king over all of Israel, that he he was given this kingdom and said, you're the king, just like Saul was that he became great because God was with him, not because of anything great in himself. Going to chapter 6, we don't have time to read it, but in chapter 6, there's this, there's this momentum building for something great to happen in chapter 7. So in the beginning of 1 Samuel, there was this um, enemy that came in. They plundered Israel. They defeated them in battle. They took the Ark of the Covenant, thinking that that would earn them favor with God. But they were not God's covenant people, so God sent curses and and Um, destruction to them and they wanted to give the the ark back so the ark was returned at at some point in this story but it wasn't ever brought into its resting place it wasn't brought into the the place that God had determined for the ark of his his presence the ark of the covenant to stay so in chapter 6 that's what we see we see David ensuring that the ark is returned that God's rules as far as David can tell are followed even though it's imperfectly so the ark that was in the kingdom of Israel is brought into Jerusalem. And it's almost as if in chapter 6 that David helps to establish God's throne. And then in chapter 7 that we'll read that God establishes David's throne. So let me read this covenant then in 2 Samuel chapter 7. As a reminder, we'll, we'll, we'll read this. We'll have the, the details of the covenant and then we'll look at the result. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's God's covenant with David. I'll read verses um, 8 through 16. So it says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who were on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Verse 11, Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God says, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In the last verse, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So very clearly in this passage, we have the the covenant laid out of God's agreement with David. So God says, I brought you up out of these pastures. I've cut off these enemies from you. I've protected you from enemies. He says, I will make you a great name like some that you already know, that the fame, the the fortune, the established uh, prestigious name that some have, I will give to you. 
He says, I will give you the, the permanent land. So Israel had been in the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey that God had given, but not all of the enemies were driven out. That Israel's partial obedience led to God leaving enemies in the land, that they would try to search everything out and see, oh, these giants are too big. We can't possibly do that. The land was meant to be purified of, of only of Israel, set apart for God's chosen people. It was a land that God was supposed to give them, but because of their disobedience, they weren't given the full land. So that's God's promise, that I will give you a permanent land of only your nation. I will give you rest from your enemies. They won't be outside your gates knocking at your door anymore. He says, I will build your house forever. So your house, establishing a, a line, a kingdom, a throne for you and also for your descendants. But this promise doesn't end with David. It, it goes on past. So God promises even things to David's descendants. He said, I will raise up a descendant, establish his kingdom forever. He's, he describes the relationship. He said, this man will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne forever. He speaks of a, a, a new aspect in the covenant. It's not just a God and his people, but a father and son relationship. God says, my loving kindness will not depart from him. In verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so you say, okay, that's wonderful that God will do that. What are the, the blessings and curses promised? What are the stipulations? God expects the king to be obedient to his law. In the law that he laid out for Moses, this was still meant for David and for his people, that the king was supposed to be an example in obedience to God's law, in ensuring that the people, that the priests, that the prophets, that, that the king obeyed this law to a T. God does mention, though, of, of when the king will go astray, that he'll discipline him out of love. So he expects for this earthly king to fail, for David to fail, for his son Solomon to fail. You ask yourself, okay, what are the promises? The promise is for a house to be established forever. It's for a, a purified land for the people that no enemies will be there uh, bothering them, that rest from their enemies, that they won't be constantly worried. This army is getting closer. This enemy is coming in. What do we do? God will take care of all that for them. Lastly, the, the, the headship. Who's in this covenant? Who's out? Who is this covenant with? So as we've narrowed in on a, a specified uh, idea of what the Messiah will be, we see that this is a covenant made with one of Abraham's descendants. So it's within the nation of Israel, God promises not just for somebody from the nation of Israel to come, but from one from the line of David, a, a king in the pattern of David to be the one who is to come, who will be the Redeemer. He will be the Messiah. So that's the covenant with David. That's the, the establishment that God has made. And so we can ask ourselves, okay, what's the response? So immediately we have in the second half of 2 Samuel 7 that Samuel prays. He thanks God. He blesses God. He declares his allegiance to God. Going on then, and we won't read it, but if you want to look at 1 Kings chapter 11, you see the result of, of David's son, of the descendant coming from him, Solomon. That God gave Solomon greater wealth than David. He, he gave him more than anyone else. That he, he gave him wisdom. He gave him favor, a blessing of life, and that eventually King Solomon turned from God, and God was, was displeased with this descendant of David. He fell into idolatry, serving other gods, the gods of his wives and concubines that he had brought in. If you'll remember 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14 that we read, it's 
as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Well, we have this pattern. If we were to read through finishing 2 Samuel, going into Kings and Chronicles and the prophets, it's, it's these cycles over and over of there's a new king, eventually in the two kingdoms of Israel, of Judah and of Israel, there's a new king in the land. And some are, have found favor with God and they obey to a degree his law. Some try to say the right things but do the wrong actions. Some are wicked and evil and blatantly worship other gods. They even prevent Israel from worshiping the one true God in the way that he is described. And so it's like at a certain point, God says enough that he, he says, I am done with Israel. I am done with these people who I've given so much to, so much opportunity, and they've blown it, that my patience runs out with you. But God still keeps his promise to David and to his line. So that promise that God will establish a house is really a threefold promise. There's an immediate way in which God had given David a nice house, that God established a, a physical temple for himself that Solomon built that was arrayed with, with beauty and with glory, that King David's throne would be established, that that line would continue, that we know from the New Testament that there is a Davidic king who came, that one was born in the pattern and line of David, that God kept that promise to them. If you were to read the, the opening chapter of Hebrews, of Hebrews chapter 1, you would see that the Psalms reflected in the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. That it's, it's the, the true descendant of David is the one who has come. We see in Isaiah chapter 11, I'll read just a couple of verses. This is often quoted around Christmas time, but it's relevant for us. It says, talking about dead Israel, the ones who have strayed after other gods, uh, Isaiah describes, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, who's David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So you have a dead stump, but you have new life coming from that. And it says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you have this, this preservation by God of even of a, an unfaithful, a, um, non-covenant-keeping, a covenant-breaking line that God is still faithful to fulfill his promises, that he brings forth one from David's line who is the king of kings, that in Romans 1 we have Paul declaring to the church in Rome, a, the one who is according to the flesh, the descendant of David, has come. And so we know if you're a Christian, if you're here listening to this and you know something of your Bible, that we serve the king of kings. We serve the one who has come in this pattern, but who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So it would be wrong for us to, to have this study, to see the failure of so many kings, to see the righteous king of Israel that has now come, and to not ask ourselves, is this king king of our lives? Is he Lord over our lives or is he not? So if he is, then praise the Lord that he's revealed himself to you, that you see him, that you've bent your knee to him, that you continually strive to be like him. And if it's not, then hear these warnings of, of God's judgment against those who go against him, of God's warnings for those who prefer lives of sin over life with him, and repent of your sins, and trust in Christ, and turn to this King of Kings who is ruling and reigning at God's right hand even now as we speak. So in the next lesson, we'll get to the prophets. We'll have two lessons there, one of looking back in time and one of looking forward in time, continuing to see what God does uh, in his master plan of redemption.